tonight is going to be a little bit different, um, but uh, hopefully, uh, as my old pastor used to say, let's dig down in the well and let's hope we don't come up dry, okay? Um, WWJD, we remember that, I think most of us do. What did Jesus do? Tonight I want to look at what did Jesus do? Because there are certain times that he did things that there's no way we could have predicted what he was going to do. Uh, so tonight we're going to look at lessons. If, does everybody have a sheet? We're going to look at some lessons that Jesus teaches us through some folks who don't um, who don't have you got who we don't even know their name. They're nameless now. Obviously they had names, so we don't know their names. Uh, I'm going to ask a question now to you. Be thinking about it. We're going to bring it back up at the end. Do you have a special assignment? that God has given you? Do you have a purpose? I'm going to cheat and tell you. Yes, you do. Okay? Uh, yes, you do. And um, we all have a purpose. If you're in, in, in God and in His will, you definitely have a purpose. Uh, when you think of the Bible, and I say, in the beginning, what does your mind immediately go to? John. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought you got it. Okay. No. So, in the beginning, we think of Genesis, right? In John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Um, sometimes we miss that. We miss the point. Jesus was before the beginning. Okay? Um, the Word there, the Word, is one of the most high and profound titles that we use for our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes out of eternity, but He did not begin, okay? Um, in the beginning, Jesus is God in human flesh. John uses the name Jesus almost entirely instead of Christ or Savior or Messiah. He does that in order to emphasize that God became man. We know that God, that Jesus is God because He is eternal, we know that Jesus is God because He's the Creator. And we also know that Jesus is God because of His incarnation. The Word, that's Jesus, assumed human flesh and dwelt among the people for whom He would die. Now, God becoming man is unique. There is no other belief system even remotely similar to this, okay? But that's exactly what makes Christianity the only truth. God became man. He knows us because He made us, which is why He relates to us so well. Now tonight I want us to see that Jesus, in that sense, since He was born like us, He walked on this earth like us, and because He became in human form, He knows us so well. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So, we're going to look tonight at three different people, three different stories, from the Gospel of John. Now these are familiar stories. These are familiar people to us. Again, we don't know their names, but that's not important. The woman at the well, woman accused of adultery, and the man born uh, blind that Jesus healed. Now, we see some firemen and policemen and medics. I know we have several in, uh, in the church. I've heard this many times. We meet people on the worst day of their lives in a lot of cases. You've heard that? These three people are probably meeting Jesus and it's the best day of their lives. Maybe. Okay? Now, these three people experience a relationship with Jesus, the God-man, and we can learn from Him. Okay? We can learn from them. But more importantly, let's look at the way Jesus handled these people in situations in such a godly way and let's learn from that. Okay? We don't have to wonder what would Jesus do in these cases. We can see what he did. Um, I can already tell. I've had to pare down my notes. I'm probably going to keep paring. Uh, we are. We're going to keep. We're going to go. But uh, just bear with me. But as we go through the book of John, we're going to see a pattern. We see through the book of John. There's an event. Something that's almost uh, uh, an event, like a miracle, or just something that that happens that's kind of extraordinary. One of the things I think of is Jesus cleansing the temple. So you have an event, and then you have some conversation taking place. 
you have maybe him talking to disciples, describing kind of what's going on you know, in, in his ministry. You might see him discussing things with other followers. So there's a conversation in some cases. There's a confrontation in many others when he has those with the Pharisees. We're going to see some of that tonight. But um, we do know the first miracle in the Bible was, this is going to be an interactive session, so y'all work with me. Um, what was the first miracle? They turned the water into wine. Water into wine at the wedding, right, in Cana, okay? And there in, um, that was in chapter 2. And we know this. Remember what Jesus said when Mary said, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? It's not my time, right? He did it anyway. But if you read carefully, I don't think it was a really a public knowledge what happened there. We know the servants know. They were kind of there seeing it in action. Mary knew. knew. The disciples uh, probably knew, if not then, later. But it really wasn't a broadcast because if you remember, they were wondering, why'd you save this wine for the end? So it wasn't his time, but yet it was his time, right? And then we move on to John 3. We know what happened there. You know, we're talking about events that happened and then a discussion. Probably the best, most uh, famous discussion in the Bible with Nicodemus, right? Uh, Nicodemus, we know the phrase, you must be born again. We also know John 3:16, maybe the first verse you ever learned. But there's something, uh, a couple other significant verses that relate to what we're talking about tonight. In verse 19 of chapter 3, Jesus says, The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light. Is that true today? Yes. You know, rats and cockroaches scurry for a dark corner when the light is turned on. Likewise, only those uh, who love God will come to the light, because lies and darkness always are in contrast to truth and light. Um, go back to, to, to what is the purpose of the Gospel of John? If you had to kind of just hint, maybe there's a verse in John that kind of encamp, you know, kind of a, is an umbrella over what is the purpose of the Gospel of John. John twenty thirty one says this: "But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name." So we're going to start in chapter 4 in your, um, in your handout. We should never compare ourselves to others. We should never compare ourselves to others. Is comparison a good thing, just in general? When you go to the store, do you uh, look at grocery store? You're looking at ingredients, maybe? You go to a, any kind of store. I know I'm looking at prices. Okay. Um, but comparing ourselves with others usually leads to one of three things. A, judging someone thinking I'm better than them can lead to pride. Judging someone can lead to pride. B, jealousy of someone wanting what they have or wanting to be able to do what they can do can lead to coveting. Okay, that could be stuff, it could be material things, somebody that makes a lot of money. Could be talents. You ever seen somebody sing and say, man, I wish I could sing like that? So, judging, jealousy, see, self-pity leads to an I-deserve mentality causing us to make excuses and blame others. Self-pity leads to an I-deserve mentality causing us to make excuses and blame others. When we look around at others and feel like they have it better than we do, we feel sorry for ourselves. But we should be thankful. We know that God gives us everything we need, don't we? So in John chapter 4, when John leaves Judea, he heads north towards Galilee. He could have gone one of three different ways. In fact, the Jews would always go a different way than straight through Samaria, wouldn't he? Um, why? The Jews and Samaritans didn't, didn't click. They didn't care for each other, did they? 
The Jews were better than those despised Samaritans. <laughs> Just ask them. Um, so they didn't take that route. But guess what? Jesus did. Jesus had a different agenda. He had a divine appointment with a woman who wasn't expecting her life to change that day. But it did. So Jesus deliberately traveled through the Samaritan town of Sychar. It was a hot day, about noon. And uh, anyway, we know that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. So at, at the middle of the day, he gets hot, he gets tired, he gets thirsty just like we do. So he wants a drink. Now, we know, now I'm not going to be able to read the whole, whole uh, passage, but we know that Jesus waited along by the well. Where were the disciples? Went to go buy food. Do you think this was strategic on Jesus' part? I think it was. He wanted some one-on-one time, and they would have, you know, again, there was a uh, little bit of discrimination there. Usually women would come to draw the water in the cool of the morning or evening, but this woman, again, we don't know her name, but she came to the well at the hottest part of the day. Why? She didn't want to see others to see her and judge her and ridicule her. She was ridiculed. She was, uh, not only was she uh, an outcast to Jewish people, but even within her people, she was an outcast because she has a sketchy past. Okay? Um, she was probably called a floozy or worse, okay? And was avoided by the people, but not Jesus. She was alone and cautious about this strange Jewish man, but Jesus lowered himself, just like he lowers himself to us. And he asked her for a drink of water there in verse 7. Now starting in verse 9, I'll read and then I'll, 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 I'll give a little bit of synopsis. But Verse 9, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You see, when he spoke to this woman, he, he broke several Jewish customs. Men didn't speak to unaccompanied women. Jews certainly didn't speak to Samaritans. And a Jewish man certainly did not ask for help from a Samaritan woman. But anyway, Jesus was gentle. He wasn't blunt. He appealed to her sympathy and asked for a favor. In verse 10, Jesus continued, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Of course, she didn't understand, but she did become curious. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Again, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't see what's going on. Okay, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, we know that Jesus told her to go get her husband. Why? Did he not know her situation? Sure he did. He did. But he was not talking about the physical. He was talking about the spiritual. The woman perceived he was a prophet. Then she quizzes Jesus about where the appropriate place to worship is. Again, we won't go deeper into that, but the disciples came back with lunch and the woman left her water pot and went into the city to tell the men about Jesus and how he knew everything that had happened to her. And then there in verse 29, Come, see a man who told me everything I did. She told the people in the town. She was persuasive, and many men followed her back to the well. So see, she saw Jesus for the first time. He made such an impact on her. But what if Jesus would have avoided that area? You know, Eddie, what amazed me is in the Bible study that about Jesus and women is that he, she is the first one that he told he was the Messiah. 
Good point. And you know, I never thought of that before. And he, he said, when she was looking for the Messiah, he said, I am in. There was an opportunity, and Jesus took advantage of it. What if he would have looked down on this woman and not even spoken to her? Let me ask you this. Do we sometimes miss those type of opportunities in our lives? D. D. Biases and prejudices prejudices have no place in the kingdom work of God. What's the first word you said? Biases and prejudices have no place in the kingdom work of God. What we can learn from Jesus in this example with this woman, he refused to argue. He didn't argue with her. He didn't browbeat her. Secondly, he avoided getting tangled up in theological concepts. She wanted to know where is the best place to worship. He didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to know who are you going to worship. He spoke of the living water. That was the real issue. And he concluded by pointing to himself. He pointed to himself. Now, I'm going to skip ahead. So, again, that lesson right there, we know, if we compare ourselves to others, there's really no good outcome. Okay? So let's remember that as Christians, we, we, we have no reason to think we're better than anybody. But are we, we're just beggars showing other beggars where to find food. Now I'm going to jump to, to chapter 8. Chapter 8. It is not our role to condemn others. It is not our role to condemn others. Now as Christians we are to discern right from wrong, but it is not our job to play judge. Usually what happens when we do, we look at others based on us and our perspective of things. Is it possible we judge others even if it's in our hearts and our minds and we don't fully know the individual or the circumstances that, uh, that we're dealing with? I think we do. That's where we get that prejudice. We prejudge. A. Too, <clears throat> excuse me, too often we condemn others based on our evalu evaluation scale. Let me say that again. We condemn others based on our evaluation scale. B, when we should look through the prism of God's standard. We need to look at people through God's standard. And while we're at it, let's look at our own selves through God's standard. Thankfully, His standard consists of grace, love, and forgiveness. Now, in chapter 8, it begins, um, it begins right after a confrontation at the end of chapter 7. Do you remember Jesus went into the uh, temple area and was teaching? And he really uh, put the Pharisees in their place. Okay? Now he comes back the very next day, and they're ready for him. Okay? You remember what got them, got them so upset the, the day before? What did he say? What did Jesus say that really riled him up? He would raise the temple in three days. Exactly. He said that, and he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but they knew exactly what he was talking about. He was saying he was God. And they picked up stones to, to kill him, but again, it was not his time. Okay? Now, Jesus went... Um, uh, was uh, the Pharisees were trying to trap him, as we said, and I'm going to start reading in verse 3, again in chapter 8. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Were these hypocrites really interested in justice? No. Of course not. They wanted to diminish Jesus in the eyes of the people. You see, hypocrisy often disguises itself in moral righteousness. 
See, the law demanded capital penalties for the man and the woman who committed adultery. So what's the question here? Where's the man? Where's the man? According to the law in Leviticus 20, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. But see, they were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to put him in a no-win scenario. So see, here's the thing. Here's the trap they thought they were setting. If Jesus agreed the woman should be stoned, many would have condemned him for being heartless. Where's the compassion? What else? He would have caught the eye of the Romans. The Romans were the only one who could execute capital punishment. Okay? So, that's if Jesus agreed with them. If he disagreed, he would be accused of denying the law. Violating the law of Moses. So at this point, you can kind of see the smirks. You know, visualize the smirks on these guys' faces. We got him. We got him. Now, all the people stood silently around. They were looking to see what was Jesus going to say. But Jesus knew they really didn't want to stone her. What they wanted to do? They wanted to stone him. Okay? Um, continuing in verse 7. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And there in verse 7, what a brilliant statement. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You see, Deuteronomy 17, we know that uh, the witness who brought forth the charge was going to be the first one who laid hands on the person being accused. Now that's pretty smart. If you think about it, if you were going to have a charge against somebody, well then if you had any conscience about you, if you were lying, surely you wouldn't want to kill somebody that bad, you know, just because you lied about them. So that's the way the law was written. So first, Jesus did not deny the defendant's guilt or ignore Moses' commands. And secondly, he placed responsibility for self-examination on them. They were the accusers, right? They had permission to carry out the sentence, but only if they were not under condemnation for their own sins. So they thought they had him. Now he gets them. I wish I could debate like that. I just can't. Without a word in defense, they went away one by one. Shamed by the knowledge of their personal liability, they had nothing to say in response. And then in verse 10, we pick up, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. Go from now and sin no more. Now here we see Jesus giving the one requirement needed for being a stone-throwing, or for being in the stone-throwing business. Sinlessness. Sinlessness. To be a spiritual judge, you have to be perfect. Blameless. Now Jesus stood up, not in the posture of a judge, but as her advocate. Likewise, when we do wrong, Jesus serves as our advocate. Where is Jesus today, right now? Sitting at the right hand of the Father. Right hand of the Father doing what? Making intercession for us. Doing exactly what he was doing for her. Jesus asked her, where are your accusers? Did he know where they were? Sure he did. He wanted the woman to recognize that no one was left there to denounce her. The men who had been determined to put her to death, they vacated the area. What was the woman's response there in verse 11 when Jesus asked, who has condemned you? No one. No one. Confronting the Pharisees' insincerity, Jesus showed compassion to this woman. At the same time, he warned her to sin no more. So he was exemplifying the Father's mercy as well as righteousness, truth, and love. You see, Jesus was not reversing the Mosaic Law, but he was giving us a beautiful picture here. He was placing his cross 
between the woman and her sin. You see, Jesus does not condone sin. He, can, he condemns sin. But by telling her to go and sin no more, he accomplished two purposes. First, he acknowledged that she had sinned. Forgiveness does not mean the absence of sin, but setting aside his penalty through Christ's atonement. And second, let's look at the tense of that uh, verb here. Go and sin no more is talking about a continuing or an ongoing habitual sin. So in other words, Jesus commanded her not to continue in sin, and he released her to live in freedom. Kind of like he does us. That's the freedom. A lot of people get that confused. We're free to live in God's will. Okay? But let me also say, Matthew 7 says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. Is that misquoted and misused quite often? Sometimes. Do not judge or you too will be judged. I want to make it clear. Later in the chapter, Jesus says, Do not give dogs to what do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Then later in 15, chapter 15, or verse 15 and 16, he says, Watch out for false prophets. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So how can we discern who are the dogs and the pigs and the false prophets unless we have the ability to make a judgment call on doctrines and deeds? So be careful. When someone says, Judge not, lest ye be judged, they don't know what they're talking about. Make sure you call them on it, okay? So, we definitely we, uh, don't want to compare. We don't want to condemn based on how Jesus has dealt with these people. Um, now, we have an obligation to be discerning. Jesus gives us permission. See, on your paper, see. Jesus gives us permission to tell right from wrong. So again... He is telling us to tell right from wrong. He's not telling us to judge ye not. Again, people take that out of context. The Bible's command that we not judge others does not mean all actions are equal. Contrary to what we hear today, and then D, truth is not relative. Truth is not relative. It doesn't change with the wind. I would never have believed ten years ago what people are saying is truth and what is okay, and what, and what's worse is they're getting away with it. <laughs> We're not calling them on it. Anything that con contradicts the truth is a lie. To call a lie, or murder, or adultery a sin, is to pass judgment. But you know what it also is? Is to agree with God. When Jesus said not to judge others, he did not mean that no one can identify sin for what it is, based on God's definition of sin. And then E, he said, or we, we want to, uh, the statement for E on your sheet, when we identify sin, we are in agreement with God. We are in agreement with God. We're just calling it like God sees it. Now, why is it easier to point out other people's sins than deal with our own? You didn't hear, you know, we like, we, we like to look at the speck in someone else's eye. Forget about the log or the plank in our own, don't we? But Jesus saw the potential. The religious leaders just saw an adulterous woman and sin, and he saw what she could become. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's what, uh, and again, we see this is a woman. The woman at the well was a woman, and again, the law of the land there was women were to step down. But not to Jesus. Not to Jesus. As believers, we should seek to be agents of God's forgiveness. Again, we, we can't turn our, our blind eye to sin and just say it's okay. But Because we lack the authority to absolve people of sin. But we can introduce them to Jesus who can absolve them of their sin. You've probably heard this quote before, and it really applies to me. So, if you meet me and forget me, you've lost nothing. But if you don't know Jesus, you've lost everything. And the next verse, verse 12, actually leads us right into our, our third point. Verse 12 there in chapter 8. 
Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There in chapter uh, chapter 9, the first, uh, the main heading there in chapter 9, she, there is no room for compromise in our obedience to God. There is no room for compromise. Now again, in verse 1 there in chapter 9, is following another confrontation with the Pharisees for Jesus. Um, but he passes a blind man. He passes a blind man. He's born blind. This is not the Bartimaeus example, by the way. Bartimaeus does have a name. This man did not. But his disciples asked him a question. Asked Jesus a question as they passed this man. Rabbi, there in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, many people, even today, we associate illness with sin. You know? On the flip side, when you see somebody... Even back then, but you see somebody who God has blessed, they've got plenty of money, they've got a big house, nice car. A lot of people say, well, God's favor must be shining on them. Okay, well, that's not God's economy. But back then, when something bad happened, something sin, they kind of wonder, okay, what happened here? Who sinned? This man sinned, or maybe his parents? You see, with their limited insight, what were they looking for? A cause and effect. What did they do to cause this problem? Okay? But, you know, obviously people are sin and there is God's discipline in certain cases. But not all illness is triggered by sin, is it? In other words, what they were saying, whose fault is it that this man is blind? See, back in their day, there might have been four different reasons uh, that they would think about why this was the way it was. Reincarnation, even back then. Their sins were from a past experience, okay, an existence that caused this problem in this life. Another reason was heredity. heredity. Now, we do know Exodus 25 talks about the sins of the father passed down to the third and fourth generation. Um, so, maybe that was the reason they were thinking you know, that could have been the cause. Number three is Adam's sin. Adam's sin passes down through humanity. There's another reason, okay? And, and we do know that Adam's sin did cause both physical and spiritual death, and that's why we needed a Redeemer, right? Amen. And lastly, believe it or not, the rabbis back then thought that the child in the womb could sin. Go figure. But then... In verse 3, Jesus answered the disciples' question. He said, neither, here nor his parent, neither he nor his parents sinned, but rather that the works of God should be revealed in him. We're all created for God's glory, but in different ways. This blind man's entire life led up to this moment to be healed and then give God the glory. You know, we know that sometimes God gains praise through healing. We've seen people healed, and we, we, we should. We should give God the glory for that. Other times, He gets glory through our response to the situation, our response to a disability. But this particular situation not only magnifies God's power as a healer, but also the greater blessing of being a follower of Christ. See, Jesus' methods were not... Our message. That's why that WWJD thing, I, you know, I've always thought about that. How do I know what Jesus would do in this particular situation I'm in? Okay? Sometimes he just spoke a word. Sometimes he touched people. In verse 5, he, uh, Jesus said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now then, verse 6. Jesus spat on the ground, made clay, and anointed the eyes of the blind man. Now you try that today. You try anointing somebody's eyes with some mud that you just you, you know picked up off the ground because you spit into it. I don't think they would take too kindly to it. Again, it's not what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do, and this is what he did. And what do you think's going on here? He said, Go and wash. And he went to the pool of Siloam, which actually means scent. The man obeyed and came back and could see again. 
He obeyed. The neighborhood, if you will, in that time, the neighborhood was amazed. The man they had seen grown up from a little boy, blind from birth, begging in the streets, could now see. Others said, no, this is not him. This is just a man like him. But then the man testified, I am he. I am the little boy that you've seen growing up. I was born blind, but now I can see. So they asked him, how were your eyes opened? He told them it was Jesus who healed him. And in verse 12 they said, where is he? He said, I don't know. I don't know. See, salvation is like a healing of this man. There's a radical change on the outward, outside is evident because of an internal transformation. And I hope that's the case with us. If we are Christians and we've been changed on the inside, inside, surely we should show it on the outside. If we're not, something's wrong. Others should see Christ in us and that's how they, that's how they would do it. You see, this man didn't see Jesus until the Lord opened his eyes. So it is with us as Christians. The important thing is not to see him, or in our case, just to know about him. We have to believe in him. This is a story, I, I, I tried to look it up, I wrote it down years ago, but I think it was J. Vernon McGee. But he tells a story about a mining explosion. People were underground mining, and there was an explosion, and um, you know they got trapped. Hours went by, and finally the rescue team reached them. They dug a hole, and, and uh, they were able to shine a light through to the men. But after a while, one of the men said, Hey, why don't they turn on the light? At that point, everybody realized something. What had happened? The explosion had caused the man to go blind. In the darkness, he didn't know he was blind. It took light to reveal to him and the others, that he was blind. Think about that. That's the way it is spiritually, isn't it? Jesus, the light, has to reveal the condition of this world, which is darkness, and the darkness of our sin in our heart. We need the light to reveal that to us. <clears throat> now, I'm going to kind of go through a little bit quickly. Um, in verse 13, we see the man was brought before the Pharisees. They questioned him. They pulled their... Uh, typical um, tricks and things. And again, the last thing they wanted to do is what? Give Jesus any credit at all. They were trying to discredit him, if anything. Um, but there's something else that happened. The same thing, him, that happened back uh, when the man was at the pool of Bethesda. What happened? What day of the week was this? It was the Sabbath. Hmm. I don't know if that we do that. <laughs> oh, they, they were just so religious. You can't do that on the Sabbath. But see, there was a division among the Pharisees. There in verse 16, it says, some were arguing, hey, you know, this is this, you know, who is this man to do this on the Sabbath? But others were saying, wait a minute, a sinner couldn't do this. This has to be used by, you know, someone being used by God. But here's the thing, this, this man, been blind, who was not a learned uh, uh, spiritual expert as these men were, they went back to him and they said, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? You can see the man kind of sitting there and reasoning, if a sinner can't do miracles, but because Jesus I can see, he must be a prophet. Okay, He's not quite there yet, but he's getting there. In verse 18, the Pharisees said uh, they still didn't believe he was brought blind from birth. So let's go to the source. Let's go ask his parents. His parents. Is this your son? In verse 19. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? They answered, indeed, this is our son. Indeed, he was born blind. But we can't tell you how he can see. In verse 20, what do they, what do they say? He is, he is of age. Ask him. Now there's something going on there that we need to look at. They were a little bit afraid. What were they afraid of? Being excommunicated. Being kicked out. Okay. 
we all want to fit in, don't we? But they were going to get kicked out if, if, if they answered wrong. Let him answer. He is of age. In verse 24 and 25, here's what we read. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. I, 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 that gives me chills. I love that verse because that's, that's a testimony. That's all of our testimony. Say what? That's all of our testimony. It should be. Spiritually speaking, we were blind. We can now see. Right. So, A. A there on your sheet. Unbelief often doesn't involve a lack, lack of facts, but a refusal to accept given proof. Unbelief often doesn't involve a lack of facts, but a refusal to accept given proof. When Jesus healed a man born the man born blind, he demonstrated God's compassion. Okay? Not his condemnation. You know. He also uh, revealed his divine power. But even so, these Pharisees still refused to be believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Do you remember the old TV show? This was a little bit before my time, but I saw the reruns. Dragnet. What did, he, what, did he, what did he say? Ma'am, just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay. Notice what the man said in verse 25. One thing I know, I was blind, but I now see again. What a testimony. He, he didn't know a lot of, you know, you know, theology. He just knows he was blind and he can now see. The man didn't try to argue with the experts in the law. But he had experience on his side, didn't he? While his questions knew the law, while his questioners knew the law, he was certain of one undeniable reality. I was blind, but now I see. Amen. B. People may argue beliefs, but have difficulty denying someone's testimony. Yeah, people may argue with our beliefs, but they have difficulty denying our testimony. The once blind man is standing in front of them, able to see. Now, when they pushed him again to answer, and perhaps with a little bit more, with a little bit of sarcasm, what the man say there in verse twenty-seven? Do you also want to become his disciple? <laughs> when people find themselves on the losing side of an argument, often what do they end up doing? Attacking the person, not the debate issue. They come at you. The man then told the religious leaders there in verse 30, this is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. And then he said in verse 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us and they cast him out. Excommunicated him. And, and remember, um, that being excluded from the synagogue not only affected the man's freedom to worship, but it affected everyday life, corporate life. Everything revolved around their religion. And notice that Jesus did not happen across the man by accident. He intentionally went looking for him. Starting in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who may who see, and that those who see may be made blind. So, kind of a, a two sides of a different of the same coin. Imagine the man's delight when Jesus found him. He had this experience with Jesus. It's high. Questioned by the Pharisees a couple times. Then finally, they just, you're out of here. And then the man who healed him finds him, comes and finds him. And asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? 
Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in? Jesus says the Son of Man. We know that is a, that's a self-identifier. Jesus used that a lot to, 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 to say, I am a man, but I'm also God. I am the Messiah. He knew exactly what he was saying. The man knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Now, prior to understanding who he was, the man respected Jesus. If you go to 36, he calls him Sir. Now he embraced Jesus as Christ and acknowledged him as Lord. You know, it's not enough to just say, yeah, Jesus was a good man. Or Jesus was, you know, a prophet. No, he's got to be Lord. He's got to be Savior. That's who he says he was. And you know the old C.S. Lewis argument? You know, who is Jesus? Three choices. He's either a liar, he was lying to us, and he knew it. Or he was a lunatic. He really thought he was telling the truth, but kind of crazy. Or the truth is, he's the Lord. He is who he says he was. And what did the man do? He worshipped him. He worshipped him. Jesus states, he came so the blind might see, and those that see might be made blind. We see two extremes here, don't we? The blind man who was blind in both respects, was now made to see. The Pharisees, who thought they could see, but in the presence of God, said they had no sin. They were tragically blind. See, those who know they are blind and in need of salvation will be made to see. But those who think they can see will remain blind and dead to sin. And again, that went literally back, you know, in this story, that's a literal thing, but spiritually speaking, that's true for us today. It's the humble, it's those who are seeking that God is going to reveal His light to. Those that are walking in darkness. Those who think they are in the light, it's a false light. Okay? Can you give us that sentence? Oh. Those who know they are blind and in need of salvation will be made to see. But those who think they can see will remain blind and dead to sin. You got it. I, my, wife, my wife says I talk a little bit fast when I get up here. I, I feel a little bit of nerves, but... Uh, at the beginning, I asked, do you have a special assignment God has given to you? A purpose? Remember, I already told you the answer. What was it? Yes, yes. there you go. Yeah, we're listening. Purpose is so important. In fact, I think that's one of the biggest problems we have today in our society. People are facing a lack of purpose. Whether you're old or young, people don't see a plan for their life. They wonder, why am I here? And I'll be honest, if you don't have that connection with God, that's probably a legitimate question. Why am I here? But as God's children, we have a purpose. But here's the catch. It's not our purpose. It's His purpose. It's what God has created us for. Romans 8.28 says it. We are called according to His purpose. Now how do we apply these lessons that we've seen that Jesus demonstrated so well? Well, He pays attention to these insignificant, nameless people while carrying out his father's assignment. So we need to ask ourselves, what assignment has God given me to do? Or maybe the better question is, who has God put in my circle of influence my assignment to bless? Again, Scott has said this, there are people in your circle of influence that he'll never meet. Same with me, same with y'all. There are people in our circle of influence that we are put there. That is our assignment. That's the business he has given us to carry out. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we all have an assignment, a job to do. It says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, let's not dodge our assignment because it seems like we don't have a chance for success. 
you know, this, this, is, this is a no-win situation. If God telling you to do it, it's a, it's a win-win, I promise. And let's not miss our assignment because it seems so insignificant, such a small thing. Matthew 25, 40 says, Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did it for me. I, I look at these, all three of these examples. Were they the least of these? But here's the thing. I think we all know some the least of these, don't we? Even in the church, I think we have a problem. We don't recognize the least of these, and we don't reach out to them. And I think we, we, need to, we need to do a better job of that. Now, when you think of modern-day evangelism in the last, you know, you know 10, 15, 20, 30 years, um, what comes to mind? Uh, somebody, uh, Billy Graham Crusades. If you still, I remember watching those on TV when I was little, the, the, the just huge crowds, okay? Uh, they were huge, and that was awesome. God used Billy Graham. But think about it. We as individuals in churches today, all across this nation, can have a much bigger impact than even Billy Graham on those crusades because we have our own circle of influence that, you know, just, just can, can, or it's vast. It's vast. We can influence more people than the millions that Billy Graham had a chance to reach, and we can be more impactful. I think we can be more impactful because we can reach people on a deeper level. We can have relationships with people. They can see us day to day to day. Neighbors, co-workers, family and friends. Because it's personal. Now, one thing I will warn us that we need to be, be careful of is we better make sure our actions line up with our words. We can have the best speech and uh, we can have verses memorized. But if our walk doesn't match our talk, it probably does more harm than good. But in closing, what or who is the special personal assignment that God has given to you? Think about that. And then, what is your first step to obedience? To, to living out, to, to carrying out that assignment that God has given you. And as you answer those questions, just in review, don't compare yourself with others. That's how we fall into a trap. Don't compare yourself with others. There's, as we saw, there is no, 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 um, no plus to that. Second, don't condemn others. Let them see that we are loving and compassionate, just like Jesus showed these people. The compassion went out. And then finally, don't compromise. God's standard is truth. Truth is not relative. And that's what we're to live out. We need to live out our faith in a dark and dying world. 